Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We often hear about crime stories in the early stages of an investigation, when they're shrouded in mystery, and then again when they slowly unravel years later in a courtroom. But what happens when we examine these cases from crime to court case? Would we potentially see a larger issue at hand? And would it cause us to remember the victims, maybe in a different way? Working as a criminal justice reporter in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada for eight years, I've covered many cases involving female homicide victims. Saskatchewan had the highest rate of intimate partner violence and domestic violence in Canada in 2018, according to Stats Canada. The percentage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in our province is also one of the highest in Canada. And the rate of femicide, the killing of women and girls primarily but not exclusively by men, exceeds the national average. This podcast series details the stories of four women, their lives, deaths, and the criminal cases that followed, in hopes of ensuring they are never forgotten. Who do I talk to to report a missing person? Uh, missing person? Yes. And who's missing? My wife. Uh, as the news release states, uh, we arrested um, a 49-year-old man today, uh, that was this afternoon, and he is now charged with murder in the disappearance and the homicide of Dorothy Ann Woods. And where did she go on Friday? No idea, with her new boyfriend, I'm thinking she's been flying to me and uh, cheating on me for quite a while, but she just left uh, me and the kids on Friday night. Dorothy Ann Woods was a bit of a rebel. It was even the name of the roller derby league she started in Saskatoon, Dot's Rebels. Her nickname was Dot, and her derby name was Cheap Shot Dot. She was both feisty and kind, a daycare operator who loved kids, and a derby player who could deliver a hit when needed. And in 2011, Dorothy was also a woman yearning for some independence. She was married with two kids, but unhappy with her marriage. She began seeing other men. Soon, her husband David found out. He would later claim that he and his wife had an open relationship, and that she left him in the middle of the night on November 12, 2011. David said he last saw Dorothy the previous night at their home on Riel Crescent in New Tana Park, a quiet neighborhood on the southeast side of Saskatoon. A two-month-long search for Dorothy gripped Saskatchewan. Family members plastered missing person posters on light and traffic poles all over the province, even in Alberta. The posters had a picture of Dorothy, wearing her blonde hair in a shoulder-length bob, smiling a slight gap in her front teeth. A few weeks after she disappeared, about a hundred people gathered in downtown Saskatoon for a candlelight vigil. People who lived on the outskirts of Saskatoon were checking their properties for any suspicious activity. It was a very tense time. 
Nobody could believe Dorothy would just up and leave her daycare, her kids, her life. Everyone wondered what had happened to her until January 4th, 2012. I'm Bree McAdam, criminal justice reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and you're listening to She's Gone, stories of female homicide victims in Saskatchewan from crime to court case. This is episode five, part one of the disappearance and death of Dorothy Ann Woods. On January 4th, 2012, it was a mild winter day in the Saskatoon area, clear in minus 6 degrees Celsius, according to weather reports. Seven years later, my producer Matt and I drove to the area where police were searching, about 30 minutes south of Saskatoon, between the communities of Dundurn and Hanley, near Blackstrap Lake. Yeah, we want to turn up there. So it's hilly. We're in a valley. Just entered the valley, signed for Indy Lake, which is near Indy Road. Yeah, and then we're going to try to take this next turn. Along this windy, ascending gravel road is a culvert, a concrete tunnel that allows water to flow under Highway 11 and into Blackstrap Lake. The culvert was just off Highway 11, the major highway connecting Saskatoon and Regina. It's interesting because this location is so, it's hidden, but almost in plain sight. Like it's, you can really clearly see Highway 11 from here. You can see cars going up and down. You know, it's not like we're, we aren't in the middle of nowhere. Um, But, but it's the, the most hidden spot you can find. Well, you can hear the traffic. It's about a 10-foot drop into the irrigation ditch. Only then can you actually see inside the culvert. This is where police found a body, wrapped in plastic polyethylene and encased in ice at the bottom of the tunnel. Um, the culvert is... I'm definitely having to crouch, and I'm about 5'8", so um, it's a bit, a bit smaller than me. And I can see, I can see right to the end. And uh, we know that uh, in order to thaw the ice, a kind of forensics team had put straw at the ends of both ends of the culvert, and they ran a heater all night in hopes of melting the ice. But it was just too slow of, the, of a process, and they had to. They knew they had to extract her quickly, so that's when they got the steam wand in to cut out the ice. An autopsy was done two days later. It confirmed this was the body of Dorothy Ann Woods. It's just, uh, it's weird to see kind of the state that this would have been in, you know, at least in some kind of similar fashion to how it was um, seven years ago when, when police were here doing their searches and extracting, extracting Dorothy's body. The following contains some information that listeners may find graphic. Dorothy had a rope wrapped three times around her neck. A pathologist determined she died from ligature strangulation. Blunt force trauma was a contributing factor in her death because she had two significant head wounds and her hands were tied behind her back. 
There was no sign of a struggle, suggesting Dorothy had been hit over the head, bound, and then strangled. But there was no way to determine when she had died. Dorothy had been found, but it was not the ending everyone had hoped for. During the investigation into Dorothy's disappearance, police were looking carefully at her husband. David and Dorothy's marriage had been shaky for months, especially after David found text messages from one of Dorothy's lovers in October 2011. This is about a month before she disappeared. He admitted sending text messages to a man named Wayne Lewis, first from Dorothy's phone and then from his phone. You want my wife? Come and get her. Have a friend who finds people for a living. I'll be talking to him. The sender also said he was Dot's husband. A month later, on November 10th, 2011, Dorothy met up with a man named Patrick at a hotel. David found out, locked her out of the house, and Dorothy went to stay with a friend, Sherry Wilson. She told Sherry that her marriage was over. The next day, November 11th, Dorothy texted another friend to say she was leaving her husband to be with a man named Derek Brown. She is seen on surveillance video leaving a Sobeys on 8th Street, groceries in hand, around 6 p.m. that day. And about an hour later, Dorothy met up with another friend, Sandy Lukowicz. They talked about how Dorothy was going to leave her husband and get a duplex nearby so she could be close to her kids. Dorothy met up with Derek Brown that night and got home around 10.30. She watched a movie with her family. David went to bed first, then the kids, and finally Dorothy. Dorothy's daughter, who was 15 at the time, said she heard the front door open and close around 1 in the morning. She got up to check on the sound. She said her dad was sleeping and her mom was gone. But Dorothy's truck was still in the garage, so she just assumed her mom had been picked up. The next day, David is seen on surveillance video buying a few items from the co-op hardware store on 8th Street with his preteen son. They include a roll of plastic poly and nylon ropes. He does some other errands. It's Sunday, and there's still no sign of Dorothy. On Monday, David calls his wife's brother, Lawrence Carter. He tells him not to bother bringing his daughter over to daycare because Dorothy has run off. On November 15th, so now four days after Dorothy was last seen at her home, David calls police. Saskatoon Police Communications, Constable Reed. Hi, how are you? Good, how can I help you? I was just wondering, who do I talk to to report a missing person? A uh, missing person? Yes. And who's missing? My wife. Your wife? What's your name? Dave Woods. And what's your wife's name? Dorothy. And why do you think she's missing? Pardon me? Why do you think she's missing? She hasn't been home since Friday night. And where did she go on Friday? No idea with her new boyfriend, I'm thinking. But uh, I don't know. I have no idea. She's been lying to me and uh, cheating on me for quite a while, but she just left uh, me and the kids on Friday night. Okay, just a moment, Dave. All right. But uh, so I can't put in a missing person then? Um, pardon me? 
No, because she's not missing. Um, if you, you know, if you had reason to suspect foul play, like she's of sound mind and, and body, right? Like she's not on any medication that would cause her to be confused or anything like that, right? If I don't hear from her for a month, do I call you back then or something or what? Well, it's not that there's any time frame on it, but you know, like I said, you might you might be more apt to suspect foul play if if a time frame like that goes by. Or else she just wanted to start fresh and yeah. But I would imagine if she. But David never does report his wife as missing. Then, Dorothy's lovers, Wayne Lewis and Derek Brown, receive a series of nearly identical text messages. They're sent from Dorothy's phone by someone claiming to be Dot's husband. The texts are racist and threatening. Derek reports them to police, who go to Riel Crescent for the first time looking for any signs of a struggle. They don't find anything alarming. Dorothy's brother and friend file a formal report, and Dorothy is declared a missing person on November 17, 2011. David Woods is brought in for questioning. It's his first formal police interview with Sergeant David Hudson, a former investigator with the Major Crimes Unit. In the video-recorded interview, David is wearing a gray University of Saskatchewan Huskies athletic sweatshirt. He denies sending the threatening messages. He calmly talks about discovering Dorothy's affairs and how he agreed it was a good idea to end their marriage. David says the last time he saw his wife was at their home the night of November 11th, 2011, and that she was watching a movie with their kids. David said he woke up in the middle of the night, went outside to have a smoke, and noticed Dorothy was gone. And he went back to bed. In the interview, David tells Hudson, quote, I think she's with some guy. Honestly, that's what I think. I don't think anything bad has happened or anything like that. David also says his wife's purse and makeup bag are gone. But during the first formal search of 19 Riel Crescent the next day, police found Dorothy's black makeup bag in a backyard garbage bin. And her purse was stuffed inside a cabinet in the garage. It was the first indication that David was lying. The search also revealed the receipt from the poly and nylon rope that David bought from the co-op the day after his wife vanished. Police found the packaging from the poly and the rope. Then police get another search warrant, this time to look for evidence of a murder. They searched the house, the garage, even the backyard, but there was nothing. No blood, no bleach, no cleanup. Dorothy's cell phone was never located. Almost two months went by with no sign of Dorothy. I was working at a radio station in Saskatoon at the time covering Dorothy's disappearance. It was consuming my thoughts. On January 6th, 2012, I remember it was a Friday, a media release came out at the end of the workday about an emergency news conference. Someone read the email out to the newsroom. Police had found the body of Dorothy Woods. I couldn't get to the former police station fast enough. At the news conference, police spokeswoman Allison Edwards made the announcement everyone was waiting for. Uh, as the news release states, uh, we arrested... Um, 
a 49-year-old man today, uh, that was this afternoon, and he is now charged with murder in the disappearance and the homicide of Dorothy Ann Woods. And as you know, uh, we received a missing persons report in uh, mid-November. Uh, Dorothy Woods' family reported her missing. Uh, she was last seen in the early morning hours at her home uh, on Riel Crescent and since that time uh, we have investigated it uh, very aggressively and uh, we have today the result of some very excellent police work and uh, we have someone... Allison said police couldn't release the 49-year-old's name as per policy because he hadn't made his first court appearance. But she said the murder suspect was the same man who had been considered a person of interest in Dorothy's disappearance. That man was her husband, David Woods. There was still a lot of questions. What led police to search that area near Blackstrap Lake? And why did it lead to David being charged? Police were tight-lipped about the investigation at this point because... The court process was still to come. David made his first appearance two days later by video in Saskatoon Provincial Court. More than a dozen of Dorothy's friends and family members were there, including friend Brianne Cack. She spoke outside court, holding her young son, who was signed up for Dorothy's daycare. I'm, I'm happy we got her back now, so we can start another process, which is the healing process. Did you know David at all? Um, just through family, but I never really did see him. It was always her that was putting on everything, and she was really the face of both parents, you know? She was doing everything for those kids. Did, did you hear uh, anybody say anything about what the dad was? No, nothing at all, really. I mean, he was quiet, never, I don't know anything about him, you know? He's very quiet. But Dorothy was a wonderful woman, and that's what we're here for today. What struck me at this time was just how little Dorothy's friends and even family members seemed to know about David. Many of them described him as quiet. Even Dorothy's brother, Lawrence Carter, said that. He sat in the courtroom's front row during David's second court appearance. This time, David appeared in person, behind the glass of the prisoner's box, wearing an orange jail sweater and brown winter coat. Lawrence looked at his brother-in-law, kind of raising his hands and shrugging as if to say, why? He later told reporters that David responded by mouthing the words, fuck you. David wanted bail before his trial. A three-hour bail hearing took place at Saskatoon Court of Queen's Bench in May of 2012, but any details presented at the hearing were protected by a publication ban. It's a standard practice used to ensure an accused gets a fair trial. Justice Peter Foley released David on $10,000 bail. He was also on strict conditions, and they included electronic monitoring, a bracelet that David had to wear, essentially making him housebound and only allowing him to go to work and have pre-approved visits with his mom and adult son. The conditions surrounding custody of his kids were undecided and set over to be dealt with at another time. He was also banned from consuming alcohol, possessing any weapons, and was allowed one cell phone with a device that records all incoming and outgoing calls. But David's freedom was brief, two months to be exact. 
The Crown appealed, and the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal reversed the bail decision, ordering David back into custody. The appeal judges ruled his release would risk undermining public confidence in the justice system. David agreed to proceed directly to trial without having a preliminary hearing. He chose to be tried by a judge and a jury. But when he fired his second lawyer, it delayed his trial, which had been set for September 2013. Defense lawyer Mike Nolan came on board and David's month-long trial began on April 28, 2014. Thirteen jurors, nine women and four men, were selected to be the triers of fact. Chief Justice Martel Papescule was the presiding judge. Dorothy's disappearance was so widespread that people had to be asked during jury selection if they knew about the case and if they thought they could be impartial. A lot of people knew Dorothy because she was so involved in the community. She met families through her daycare. She was naturally charismatic and social, often organizing events and throwing parties. She was also part of the tight-knit roller derby community. The women who compete often refer to themselves as a sisterhood. When they discovered one of their own was missing, they banded together and searched for their sister. Messages poured in from derby leagues all over Canada and even the United States when news of Dorothy's death surfaced. The public interest in this case was partially gauged by the amount of people who came to court. This was one of the few trials I've covered where members of the public just came to observe, some almost every day. A recent policy change allowed accredited media to use their cell phones in court. This was the first major trial that local reporters live-tweeted. It allowed us to see just how engaged people were. Court is open to the public, but people are usually at work or live outside the city, so you never really know who's watching. Twitter provided a real-time window into the courtroom that people could peer through wherever they were, and journalists could actually see how many people were following their reporting. Renovations on Saskatoon's Court of Queen's Bench finished in 2014. The David Woods trial was the first jury trial in the new courthouse. The courtroom, one of two jury rooms in the building, is at the end of a sunny corridor in the new extension. Jurors sat on the far side of the room, directly across from David Woods. They had little flat-screen TVs that emerged from the railings in front of them with a push of a button, allowing them to view any video evidence close up. Two large flat-screen TVs hung from the ceiling, one closer to the gallery and the other closer to the accused. In jury trials, lawyers are allowed to make opening statements before they call evidence. This was the Crown's opportunity, for the first time, to lay out its case for all to hear. And one of the first pieces of evidence the jury heard was how police were led out to the area where Dorothy's body was found. She's Gone is researched and written by me, Bree McAdam. Our producers are Ashley Trask and Matt Olson. Our theme music was created by Bryce Hall. And editorial assistance comes from our editor-in-chief here at the Star Phoenix, Heather Person. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode. Those answers that he gave that diverged from direct examination to cross-examination were so different. You couldn't argue that both could be true. I'd never had it happen before, and I still haven't had it happen again since then. <laughs>